Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Nick said earlier. We're glad you're here with us. We're in the fourth week this morning of exploring what we're calling the drama of Scripture. We are making our way through the whole Bible, and we're thinking of it as a play in six acts. In God's story, the first act is creation. The second is the fall. The third is covenant. The fourth, God sends his son Jesus. And in the fifth, he sends us out as the church. And with the sixth act comes consummation. Or if we were to unpack those six acts a little more, creation is when God establishes his kingdom. Soon after that, we learn of rebellion in the kingdom. We call that the fall. Next, God begins his redemption project as he covenants with Israel, choosing a people for himself. Then the true king comes and redemption is accomplished in Jesus. The kingdom proceeds to grow through the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not until the final act that redemption is consummated with the return of the king, the return of Jesus, when the original goodness of the world is restored. And at the very center of this story is Jesus Christ, in whom we believe God has revealed his fullest purpose and meaning for the world. And the Bible teaches that only in this grand narrative can we discover the meaning of human history, the meaning of your life, the meaning of mine, our purpose in the world. And so you can think of the whole of Scripture as something like a love letter written to each of us individually and to the church, through which we're invited to adopt this overarching story as our own, to find our place in it, to trust God who is its author, and to believe that he continues to be present with us, that he's ready to come to our help, that he is intervening in our lives as he always has, shaping our ends, watching over us. In John 3 which we've read from this morning, Jesus explains the change that he is bringing into the world. And he does that by comparing who he is and the difference he will make to being born again. Now, those aren't two words you hear put together very often. Usually, being born is a one-time thing. But if you're familiar with a certain kind of church culture, you might have heard about born-again Christians. Before we moved to Guelph, we lived at Ossington and College, not too far from here. And I remember walking to the polling station at Doosan School during the 2008 federal election in the company of my neighbor. He was concerned. He told me that born-again Christians from the U.S. were infiltrating Canadian politics. He said, they see everything in black and white. They're a threat to our democracy. I replied, Chris, I got to tell you, I consider myself to be a born-again Christian. No, you're not, he said. You're Presbyterian, you're nice, and you're normal. <laughs> so apparently, in his estimation, the mainline Protestant church is nice and normal, but not born again. I asked for more of his impressions of born-again Christianity. He said that it was for people who can't handle life's complexity, who needed the crutch of moral certainty. 
He went on to say that it was anti-intellectual and appealed to those who were uneducated, emotional. We had a great conversation about it and grew in our friendship through that opportunity. The reality, I think, is that many in our culture, if they know this term born again at all, assume that born-again Christians are either fundamentalist or the opposite of nice and normal, which I guess would be obnoxious and abnormal. You can think of Ned Flanders from the classic TV show, The Simpsons. Apparently, Ned is the world's most famous evangelical Christian. Always cheerful, always upbeat, and known for witty catchphrases like Oakley Dokley. Ned's character was created in the words of its author to be so cloyingly perfect as to annoy and shame the Simpsons and their dysfunctional family. So that is a born-again Christian for a lot of people out there. And as we seek to get past the culture's misconceptions and maybe our own as well, we're going to embark this morning on an attempt to recover what Jesus really meant by being born again. And as we do that, we will recognize its centrality. Because in verse 7, Jesus says clearly, you must be born again. It's not optional. It's not a niche market within the church or a certain style of worship or faith. It's the essence of Christianity. Nicodemus, for his part, defies the stereotypes we may bring to the table. He's not weak. He doesn't need the crutch of conservative religion. He's not uneducated or anti-intellectual. In verse 1, it says Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So we know he was wealthy, he was powerful, he was well-established as a scholar, an expert in the law. In verse 2, he proceeds to call Jesus teacher. And later, in verse 10, Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. He's a member of the intellectual elite. You can think of him as a full professor, a Canada research chair, or a high-powered managing partner in a prestigious law firm. He's completely secure in his knowledge and expertise. He's in total control of his life. I think that's why Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the wind that you can't control, that moves this way and that. But why would Nicodemus approach Jesus? He represented the establishment, and most of his peers would have been strongly opposed to Jesus, especially if you go back to chapter 2, especially after Jesus had just chased the money changers out of the temple with a whip. That's probably why he went to see Jesus at night. Did you pick up on that detail? He's hiding. He's taking a risk here, but not on his own. It seems that he speaks for a group when he says, we know you are a teacher. He and his friends have recognized Jesus as someone extraordinary who has come from God, and Nicodemus is wondering if they can help each other. He wants to know the secret. How is Jesus doing these signs he's been doing? How is it that he has become so influential so quickly? What is the source of his power? Nicodemus isn't fragile. He's not needy. In fact, he's the opposite. He's a Pharisee. He's got it figured out. 
You may hear born-again Christians dismissed as unsophisticated, weak people who need moral certainty, but Nicodemus was a self-assured and self-possessed leader, an expert in control of his life. And yet Jesus tells him, you must be born again. When Jesus calls us to the new birth, all of us, as is made clear here in his encounter with Nicodemus, he's not asking us to embrace, embrace religious structure to adhere to moral uprightness. No, he is challenging those things. Nicodemus was respectable and accomplished, and yet Jesus still says to him, you must be born again. All his good behavior doesn't make a difference. Okay, so Jesus is clearly talking about something different from our preconceived notions of what it means to be born again. What does he mean then? Well, to be born again means total transformation. This rebirth isn't just a makeover. Jesus isn't offering coaching to Nicodemus so he can take his game to the next level. No, he's telling him that all of his skills, all of his abilities, his whole resume, his CV doesn't count for anything ultimately. Jesus isn't impressed. What Jesus is saying instead is that his whole identity needs to be overthrown, transformed, changed, and made new. Often we see ourselves in terms of what we've accomplished. We find our identity in something that makes us feel good about ourselves, that makes us special. Maybe it's our relationships, the friends we have or romantic relationships, marriage, our family. Maybe it's our education, our job, our career achievements, the success we've enjoyed or the success that we're working towards, that we dream of. Maybe it's our national or our ethnic identity. Maybe it's our character, that we're a good person ready to serve others. Maybe it's our politics our activism, the pursuit of justice, or some other form of political commitment. It may be our intelligence, our knowledge, our common sense, our ability to get things done, or our emotional awareness. The list goes on as we find attributes that give us meaning, that provide worth. But what if we found ourselves without any of those things? Because scripture teaches that all of them will pass away. That they are not truly worthy of our trust and that they will disappoint us in the end. They are good things, but they are not ultimate things. Only God's love endures forever. Only he is true enough and good enough to be worthy of our praise. We have been using Martin Luther's definition of sin. We did that when we looked at the fall, Act 2 of this drama of Scripture in Genesis 3. And that is humanity curved in on itself, that we are curved in on ourselves, focused on our own self-interest, preoccupied with our own concerns. Only God can redeem us from that. Only he can set us free from the prison of our self-centeredness. It requires a total transformation. Nothing less will do. Paul says it best 
in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And then in Ephesians and Colossians, he urges us to put on the new self. You don't just get the power to change when you come to know Jesus or the power to be a better person or to influence people, which is what I think Nicodemus was after. You get a whole new identity. You're living a different life now. Your priorities are completely rearranged. There's a story about St. Augustine, the North African church father who stands as such a theological giant in Christian history. Before his conversion in 386, Augustine had a reputation for sleeping around. The pleasure of sexual identity was at the heart of his identity. After Augustine became a Christian, he returned to his hometown and had an encounter with one of his former mistresses. She reached out to him trying to get his attention in ways that had always been successful in the past. But she was surprised by the difference. The story goes that when he did not respond to her advances as she expected, she called out to him, Augustine, it is I. And he replied, yes, I know, but it is not I. The point is that he had not simply adopted new sexual ethics that ruled out his former promiscuity. No, as he focused on Jesus now, at the core of his identity, at the core of his whole life, as Jesus took up residence in his heart and mind, sex no longer had such power over him because he had been made new. He was transformed with new life. In verse 5 here in John 3, Jesus says, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Jesus isn't talking about baptism at that point. He's referring to Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God promises to give us a new heart and then sends his spirit to give dry bones new life. Last week, Nick preached on covenant, the third act in the drama of scripture. And I think those two chapters in Ezekiel represent a transition a window into what will become the new covenant from the covenant with Abraham. I think those dry bones of Ezekiel 37 represent Israel's experience with covenant. God's people could not and cannot today live up to what covenant requires of us. We turn away most consistently. We are prone to wander. We choose life apart from God, which is death. But God sent his son to die in our place to give us the new life we truly long for, always, and the hope of the resurrection. As God breathes new life into you, as you are made new, as you grow in friendship with the Holy Spirit, with new desires, new motivations, new power, you will discover that Jesus makes all things new now in you and through you. Is that your expectation of this life of faith? Ezekiel conveys the word of God who says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, you my chosen people, and you will be clean. There's the water 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I think what resonates most with me is the heart of stone. How often do we find that we are not moved? We are without compassion. We continue week in and week out to do the things we do. This is the language of covenant, but it speaks of transformation instead of obligation. It speaks of newness. From death to life, that promise is fulfilled in Christ. So how does this new birth happen? So far, Nicodemus has been relating to Jesus as another teacher. But in verse 14, everything changes. Jesus dispels that misconception. He quotes from Numbers 21, a strange episode during the exodus from Egypt when all these venomous snakes come into the camp and start biting the Israelites, and they're dying. And God tells Moses to hold up a bronze serpent. And he did so, and anyone who looked at this serpent was healed. What Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus here is that he's not just a teacher, but he's so much more. That he is the savior of the world and of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is expecting to maybe learn something new from Jesus, a new method, a new technique. But Jesus did not come to tell people how to save themselves. He came to say, it is finished. I have done it for you. To be born again means that you see everything differently. And so from this point on, Nicodemus doesn't say another word. He starts to listen. And Jesus left that image with Nicodemus, that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that we can be healed and have eternal life. How do we get that? Well, think about birth. How does it happen? I've been through it three times. Well, not really. I remember when our first child was born. We were living next door in Knox House at the time, and every Tuesday when Judith was pregnant, we would walk across Queen's Park to prenatal classes at Women's College Hospital. We practiced things like breathing exercises. We learned about childbirth. There were diagrams, PowerPoint. But what I remember most of all is that nothing I learned in those classes helped me in the slightest. Now, do take prenatal classes, but... It did not make a difference. Each of our kids had different birth experiences. For example, our son Callum, who's 21 now, was born less than 30 minutes after we arrived at Mount Sinai. John Reeves drove us in his gigantic Buick that was falling apart down Spadina, down University. We thought we might not even make it there. But in all of their births, one thing was constant. I was peripheral to the operation. You might say useless. 
How is a baby born? Well, the father has little to offer. How about the baby? Well, the baby is perfectly helpless. It is born through its mother's labor and pain. She's the one who has to suffer. Do you want to experience God's love and transformation in your life? You cannot position yourself to be born again. Someone else has to do it for you. Jesus says, you have to receive this. He says, believe in me, lift it up. I will be your, che- your teacher, but first and foremost, I am your savior. Nicodemus shows up later in the gospel according to John in chapter 19 after the crucifixion with Joseph of Arimathea. He took the body of Jesus, wrapped it, and laid it to rest. Now that would have taken courage. Jesus, a revolutionary who had been executed, an insurrectionist, and yet Nicodemus, this ambitious, accomplished man, associated himself with Jesus, now publicly, no longer hiding, no longer in the dark. But also the work itself, that someone powerful, wealthy, a member of the ruling council would prepare a body for burial was unthinkable. Only women and slaves did that work in the ancient culture of the Near East. Nicodemus, it seems, had changed. Now, we don't know for sure. We're not told. But we can surmise, we can speculate that when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, he must have remembered the words he spoke to him. He must have understood at last. It took him a long time. And so conversion happens differently for every one of us. Your story will be different from mine. And one of the joys of the Christian life is to share those stories. Sometimes we do that on Sunday morning. More often it happens in home churches and other settings over coffee. It can take years of gradual reflection and realization as it did for Nicodemus. Or it can happen instantly. We see both of these models in scripture. Don't let anyone tell you you it has to be done a certain way. Now, if you're here today and you're interested, but you don't know Jesus, maybe you have all kinds of questions, then I want to encourage you to stick around. You have company, and you will find that we are a community of both questioning and teaching. And when you're ready, find a few people you can do that with honestly. Every Sunday when we say, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here, we mean it. But in the thick of that diversity of experience, there's always one common theme. Jesus offers himself for us. When he says we all have to be born again, he's putting himself forward as the source of our new life and faith. He's the one who gives birth. He's going to die in the labor. He's going to lose everything so that we can have eternal life. But he loves us so much that he willingly lays down his life at the cross so that we can be reborn, so the church can come into existence, so that we can see him, see his kingdom, and grow in our love of him and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, I watched the funeral service for Ian Shugart. His family had been part of our Knox community for generations. Ian grew up here, and his niece, Sophie, 
sits near the front. I so appreciate that, Sophie, every Sunday. And she has been such an encouragement to me and to our family since arriving here. She blesses us with her creativity and her kindness. And she also is really looking forward to the, the annual meeting. So that's something new. Her uncle, Ian Shugart, was clerk of the Privy Council, a position of great power and influence that encompasses serving as deputy minister to the prime minister, as secretary of the cabinet, and as head of the federal civil service, all 350,000 of its members. In that, he reminds me of Nicodemus in John 3. Ian Shugart was also a man of deep Christian faith, an elder at St. Paul's Presbyterian Church in Ottawa who often preached in churches around the city. He was a remarkably bipartisan figure too, or maybe you would say cross-partisan. Leaders from every party called him fair and generous. The obituaries have been something amazing to me. In the current climate of politics in North America, but the word I've heard used most of all to describe Ian is humble. In that, he reminds me of Nicodemus in John chapter 19. The Nicodemus who would associate himself with Jesus, who would do the work of a slave. Ian Shugart has had as much time for lowly backbenchers as for cabinet ministers. He gave advice freely to anyone who asked. He took the time. He was also committed to doing his job with excellence as a witness to Jesus and as the primary way that Christians gain credibility in settings where they would otherwise be viewed with suspicion. He did not draw attention to himself through all of this. Ian died of cancer at the age of 66. And yesterday, some of our country's most powerful leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, gathered to remember him, and they heard the gospel preached, as Ian would have wanted. And I tell you this story to encourage you in humility. All of us in this room have influence of one kind or another, whether we're in positions of high and obvious influence like Nicodemus. How are you living out what I hope is the reality in your life of being born again in Jesus? Later in this chapter, John the Baptist will say, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. In what practical ways are you practicing that humility? If you're wondering if you're born again, it plays out in those ways each day in the people we come into contact with in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our classes. Most of all, I want to encourage you to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be born again. He gives us new life. If you're a Christian and you don't feel like you've seen the change you want to in your life, then seek the Spirit. Ask Him to make you new. Step out in faith and expectation that He will do just that. Pray for more of Jesus in your life, that He would increase. We're going to take a moment in prayer shortly, a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to do just that. There will be words up on the screen that you can use as your prayer if you'd like. But I want to close now with the prayer that Ian Shugart prayed the last time he preached at St. Paul's in Ottawa back in September. Let's pray. We thank you, almighty God, that Jesus did not despair, but for the joy of the glory set before him endured the cross for us.
he submitted. He humbled himself under your mighty hand, knowing that in due time you would lift him up. And he did this that we might be born again to a new and living hope. Help us, O God, this day and every day of our lives to trust in you that a glorious inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, and so to endure any trials you may call us to suffer, knowing again that we have been born to new life in Christ and that he is trustworthy above all. Amen. Let's take a moment now in prayer.